It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. When the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan in 2021, the world watched in horror. Despite some initial promises around women's rights, the Taliban has systematically denied basic services to women and girls and excluded them from public life. Today, Afghanistan's women live under one of the most restrictive regimes in the world. They are unable to access secondary education, to travel without a male relative, to attend university, to work for an aid organisation, and the list goes on. To keep the spotlight on this worsening crisis, the Global Institute for Women's Leadership hosted a conversation about women's lives under the Taliban. In this episode, you'll hear that discussion recorded live from the event at King's College London. For this conversation, I was joined by Zara Yoya, journalist and founder of Rashana Media, an organisation that tells the stories of Afghan women globally. Christina Lamb, the Chief Foreign Correspondent for the Sunday Times. Paula Question, a filmmaker and attorney specialising in international humanitarian and human rights law. And Saveto Mohammed Ishog, a woman's rights activist, TEDx speaker, and social entrepreneur. I'm going to start now with Zara and ask her to tell us something about your own story. You're a girl who was so keen to become educated. There was a period when you dressed like a boy in order to be able to go to school. And you've clearly become motivated to tell women's stories through your media venture, which has a very special name. And you might want to tell us why it's named as it is. Thank you very much. It is a great honor for me to be among you. So, yeah, as, as you know, I was born in 1992 in Bamiyan provinces, a province of uh, Afghanistan, which is a very remote area. And on that time, the first time of the Taliban, to be honest, as, uh, when I'm describing uh, my past life uh, during the Taliban first role, it's absolutely a nightmare. It is very heartbroken for me that on that time I forced to uh, change even my identity and uh, my clothes and everything. I changed my life because of my desire to education and to school. And that's why sometimes I can't find to describe the situation of girls that now in the 21st century they are deprived from very fundamental and basic rights. 
So they are not allowed to go to school, they are not allowed even go to outside, and they, even they are not allowed to wear what they like. And also, it is, I think for me it's a privilege, and I, I can say that education changed my life. I came through a difficult circumstance, and I studied law. I worked as a journalist since 2011 in Afghanistan. And in 2020, I decided to establish Trukshana Media as a news agency to cover the stories of women, to give them a platform that they are voiceless. They, do, they didn't have this chance before to tell their personal experience. Because in my country, most of the time, women, they are very busy. And, and I'm sure in Afghanistan and other countries around the world, women and girls have been told that be silent. That's why we, at the beginning, a group of female journalists, we decided to create this, a platform for women. And we chose the name Rukhshana because Rukhshana was a young, uh, a 19 years old young girls, a girl in, uh, in war provinces. In 2015, she was forced a mar marriage uh, with a man that she didn't like him or, or love him. And then she fled from this forced marriage. And unfortunately, the Taliban on that time, on this, uh, that area, they arrested her. And Rukhshana stoned and died very soon. And the, died of, the death of the Rukhshana was recorded by a 30-second uh, video. So that's, I realized that, oh, here we have a big gap. We don't have a special uh, news agency or a media that focus on the Afghan women's issues that we really need. And we have to document it for the history and for the next generation, what, is, what happened in our life in, in Afghanistan uh, under the Taliban. Thank you. Christina, I'm going to turn to you now. You are the Chief Foreign Correspondent at the Sunday Times. You've spent many years uh, reporting from some of the hardest environments in the world. And as we heard in the earlier introduction, you very much specialised on trying to tell women's stories in conflict zones. Part of the conversation already is that we are no longer hearing the stories of Afghan women and girls that through our media, you know, whether it's the Sunday Times or other forms of mainstream media, those stories are no longer foregrounded. And can you talk to us about whether you think that's right and why that happens? Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, first of all, great that we're having this event, right, to, to try and actually remind people of what's happening. Because if you just think about it for a moment, for more than 20 months, girls in Afghanistan have not been able to go to high school. That's unbelievable. We are in the 21st century. I've been three times since Taliban took over. Now they're stopping female journalists, it seems, from going, so I have not been able to go recently. When they first took over, it was a huge shock to everybody. I mean, even after going three times, I still don't get my head around it, really. I mean, to go, I can't think of any other story I've covered that's so traumatic to go and see Taliban everywhere. The hotel where I stay, which the Taliban in the past tried to blow up and killed people in the buffet, now the security is all done by Taliban. <laughs> Lots of my female friends will say to me, 
that they wish the West never came to Afghanistan because we created dreams that, that have just been shattered. And I feel personally, actually, I've talked to other female foreign journalists about this who, I mean, it's a weird thing about Afghanistan. There's a group of us women, like me, Lise Dissat, Lindsay Hilsom, Susanna George, The Washington Post. It seems to have been a, a story that women have really focused on for years. And I think we all feel like, did we do something wrong? Why, why did we not see that this was coming? Um, and we feel very personally about the situation, how tragic it is, and angry that people were left in this situation, that the world seems to want to move on. And I know people at the White House who have said to me that if the White House could just erase the word Afghanistan from the dictionary, they would do so because, you know, it's a, a massive international embarrassment what happened. Um, at least the United States has had a sort of inquiry into what happened in this country. We haven't done that. We've had an inquiry into the evacuation, but that is you know, just a part of it. We should be having a public inquiry into the last 20 years and how come after spending all this money, so many lives lost, 471 British lives, but I mean, tens of thousands of Afghan lives, more than 100,000, for it to just end up with the Taliban coming back again. And when the Taliban first took over, there was a lot of discussion, oh, well, the Taliban's changed, this is Taliban 2.0, you've probably heard that expression, and it won't be the same as before. Now, I didn't know and I'd had some meetings with some of the Taliban ministers in the past, which made me think they haven't changed from some of the things that they'd said. However, I believed very strongly and still believe that Afghanistan had changed, that you have amazing women like these two women here, that you've had 20 years of people being educated. Millions of people now have gone through education. Women were working as judges, as police chiefs, as film directors, as MPs. It wasn't easy being a woman, even in the previous situation. And there were a lot of people that caused problems for women. But you could have dreams right? and expect to be able re reasonably to achieve them. And that's all gone. The fact is that despite those changes in Afghanistan, which I would also include, apart from education, almost everybody's got smartphones, even in the remotest place. So it's very different to when the Taliban were in power before in the 90s, because at that point, Afghanistan was really cut off from the rest of the world. There weren't even landlines, let alone mobile phones. So people really didn't know. I mean, I remember going there after 9-11 and people saying to me, what is this building? What is this World Trade Center? How can there possibly be so many people killed in an attack? And because the highest building in Kabul at that time was four stories, they couldn't conceive, they hadn't seen pictures of anything like the World Trade Center. Now that's very different. Everybody's got mobile phones. Everyone sees what life is like outside. And also the media. I mean, the one thing that I would say has been a success of Western involvement in Afghanistan was the media, that we had a very flourishing media in Afghanistan that was pretty much free. So I thought, okay, whatever the Taliban try to do, actually they can't be like they were before because of all these things. And because it's a very young population, like 70% under 30, they, all these people have grown up in a different way. 
But I was wrong because the Taliban have done exactly what they did before. They have, it's pretty much textbook copy of what they did in the 90s. They've, you know, first banned girls from going to high school, then from university, then women from working. Now we've had like women can't go to the park, women can't go to the gym. <laughs> I guess there's a few things that they haven't liked before they, women weren't allowed to wear lipstick or white shoes or shoes yeah. that clicked. And I mean, sooner or later, I guess these restrictions will happen. Uh, one uh, friend of mine in Afghanistan said to me, soon they're going to say that there's not enough oxygen in Afghanistan so only men can breathe, you know, it is. And the world kind of sits by. Now, I think that Partly no one really knows what to do because the leverage that everyone thought they had with the Taliban, which was that they needed money because, as you know, the other tragedy in Afghanistan at the moment is it has what the UN calls the world's worst humanitarian crisis. And personally, I've reported on, you know, people selling their children, their babies, their kidneys, people committing suicide because the situation is so desperate. It's really very hard. I wrote last year that in 35 years of reporting, I've never seen such a terrible situation and I meant it. So people thought, okay, the Taliban needs to be able to feed people in this situation, so they need international aid and therefore they will agree to allow, allow, I mean, this shouldn't be a question of allowing, they will agree for girls to go to school, women to go to work. But the fact is, my impression from talking to Taliban officials is they really don't care. They say things like, oh, well, Allah will provide, well, Allah is not providing. Or they will say, you know, we lived in the mountains for 20 years on, on stale bread so, you know, people can survive. So it's very difficult. What's your leverage when you're dealing with a regime that actually doesn't really care about what happens to its own people? But, you know, perhaps it cares about its fighters who are going hungry. And we also have seen these divisions in the Taliban, which is very different to when they were in power before, and it was a homogenous group. This time, there are definite rifts between what people call the hardline Taliban, and somebody today described to me as the saner Taliban, um, and the sort of pragmatists in the middle. So, you know, there is some scope, I think, for the outside world in dealing with the Taliban through that, and I really don't think the answer is disengaging. I think we, we can't just pretend it will go away. We do have to engage, but it, you know, it has to be an engagement with something back in return. It can't just be like giving to the Taliban, and that's very difficult. I'm going to turn now to Sveto, and your advocacy and activism is built in many ways around trying to tell the many layers of women's stories in Afghanistan. You don't want us to see any of the precious individuals there as stereotypes. You want us to see the, the fuller, rounder story. Can you talk to us about that and about what's motivated you to be at the forefront of this activism? Yeah. Thank you so much, Julia, and thank you so much uh, for, the organizers, for, this, for organizing this such an important event. Um, about the question, so when I meant the stereotypes, what I mean is that how in general Afghan women um, are portrayed as 
passive victims, very weak, people who need pity. I think that's completely not true uh, because in my opinion, Afghan women are the strongest women. They are very powerful, they're very strong, they're leaders in their communities, they're leaders in their families. They are capable and leaders. And I think that was very proved, uh, very much proved after the collapse of Afghanistan. We have seen women protesting on the streets, so they didn't stay silent, they were not passive victims. Uh, they have started, they have turned their homes into secret schools and um, they have started, the teachers have started volunteering and they are not receiving salaries, but they're teaching the next generation of girls in their homes. So women are doing a lot. And despite these problems, despite these circumstances and challenges that we are facing in Afghanistan. Uh, so I think it's, it's, very, it's very important to kind of have the approach, whether it's from humanitarian perspective or from journalism, from any side of perspective to view Afghan women as um, not passive victims of people who are actively trying to challenge their status quo and challenge the situation. So right now, if you are a, a woman and girl in Afghanistan, you cannot go to school above sixth grade, you cannot go to university, you cannot work, you cannot go to gym or parks. So it's, it's very devastating. However, if you see how motivated they are and how much they have thirst and passion for education, and here I would love to um, talk about my personal story. So in uh, 2016, in August 2016, when I was studying, was doing my undergraduate studies at the American University of Afghanistan in Kabul, it was attacked by the Taliban. So over 15 students and staff were murdered. And uh, so we actually had to stay at home for eight months. And it's not easy when you stay at home. And, and I, I motivated, uh, I lost all my motivation at that time. I was, I was about to give up because I had a dream of, studying abroad and getting my master's in another country and had all these dreams but it was just vanished in front of my eyes and I was stuck at home for eight long months. We were lucky enough obviously because we did uh, a lot of lobbying and we had to convince the USAID and other organizations and the, the board of our, um, of our university to reopen it because there were rumors that it will be closed. And the people who returned, the students were over 90% of students were back. So that already shows the passion and commitment of the Afghan students. The Afghans are so, especially the Afghan youth, and Christina, you're, you're so right, the Afghan youth, we have like a large population of the Afghan youth. And I think what we have in Afghanistan is that this passion for bringing positive changes and uh, kind of empowering our communities and whatever they, they are. So I, was, so I was running a business in Afghanistan in Kabul, and, uh, and I was involved in a lot of like youth communities, so we had a lot of... So when I talk about these things, uh, people don't understand that we had such a bright and beautiful and driving youth, and we still have it, but it needs to be supported. So I was involved in different youth organizations, so for example, uh, a lot of like business accelerators and things like that. All the programs that you have in here, you would have there as well, so it, there was not a lot of difference. That's our strength. We know how to leverage technology, people are especially the youth, and I'm speaking again like for the most of the urban part and rural part, we have a lot of issues. Right now, if you, if you talk to any person, any girl who is stuck in her home, you will learn how she is, she's not sitting silent, so she's taking online courses despite problems. So an Afghan girl in Afghanistan right now is facing electricity problems, so they don't have electricity all the time, like most of the time. 
she faces internet problems, or the internet is not as fast as here, it's, or they cannot afford because of the humanitarian crisis. So there are so many problems on multiple layers, but you still see how passionate they are and how much thirsty they are for education. And uh, so through my, uh, I run an NGO when we're working on uh, awareness raising, capacity building programs, and also storytelling. And I'm really glad to see everyone is focused on storytelling, so because I feel like that's such a powerful tool to create change, including the policy changes and social changes. And one of the girls uh, in one of the workshops that he had, uh, she told me that how these kind of workshops, they're online, how it gives them hope uh, and how she feels alive again, and she feels that she has wings again. So that comment was very something that just went to my heart because I can totally understand her because I went through that process myself. Because I thought that, okay, I will not be able to finish my university, and uh, there's so many people who, whose, who's, uh, it was their last year of, of high school, and they were about to graduate. So I think it's impacting them even more because they were about to go one step ahead of their, um, to reaching their dreams. So yeah, so when discussing Afghan women, it's really important to keep that in mind, that they are capable if they will be given opportunities. I think that's something that all of us in this room can do is to support. So the support that the international community can do is to amplify the local voices. So even now when I talk, I always share my story or I talk to a person who is in Afghanistan because I think we have to give platforms. And I honestly believe that Afghan women, or in general women from the global south, are not voiceless. Uh, and I, I don't know, I have a problem with that uh, term as well. We have a voice. We just need to be given a platform. Mm -hmm. If you give a platform, and I'm really great that all the panelists here are giving platform through their own organization, through their own work. Uh, so it's really important to give them platform, to hear their stories, to hear their perspectives, because we have the solutions. A lot of right now local NGOs and local, not only NGOs, like businesses, are trying to fill the gap of humanitarian crisis, <coughs> education crisis, everything they're doing, they just need support. So always try to listen to the Afghan women who are in, who is in Afghanistan because she knows the solution and she will say that perfectly. And I would also like to mention one uh, more thing which is really important and essential and it's something, so I moved to the UK since actually August 2021, the collapse of Afghanistan, and I've noticed one misconception about uh, our religion. So I want to kind of clarify that, <laughs> is that whatever the Taliban are doing is in complete contradiction to our Islamic teachings, to Islam. So whatever is happening there, you shouldn't think that it is what the religion of Islam is. Because our religion gives the right to women to study, to work, to run businesses, to go to gym, to go to park, to do all the things that they have banned. And the first word actually that was revealed, it was Iqra. Iqra means read. And then uh, our prophet's saying is that uh, it's compulsory upon every Muslim man and women to seek knowledge and education. So education is a very fundamental Islamic right, and that's what Afghan women want. They don't want anything extra. They just want their Islamic rights because Islam gives every right to, to a woman um, and a man as well. But like right now with the situation in Afghanistan, they are only using women's rights as uh, to just develop their own or going through their own agenda, which I don't know which, which agenda is that because I don't see it as Islamic at all. I'm going to uh, turn now to, to Paula and congratulations again on, on the film. Can you talk to us about 
how you first got engaged. You, there's obviously a backstory here, a personal story, yeah. uh, that led you to creating a work with such passion at its centre. And what has the film done so far? How have you been exposing the film and how do you think it's carrying the story that we want heard um, around the world? It's really just such an honour to be sitting here with you all. Um, I'm a human rights lawyer by training and I landed a dream job, what I thought was out of law school, doing international humanitarian law, writing briefs based on different rights issues for the United Nations. And I think six months in, I was so disillusioned um, by the international landscape and the lack of real tangible change. And luckily, at that time, I was able to get involved with a film project. And I fell in love. And you know, as most theater kids, <laughs> we really are just always trying to get back to that part of ourselves, that creative, passionate part. And I was very grateful to have the chance to see the impact that film could have. Um, that first film was called Honor Diaries. It actually had a big impact here in the United Kingdom in which we were able to speak openly about honor-based violence. And within a year of the film's release here in the UK, forced marriage became a criminal offense. And so from that moment on, I was totally hooked and I saw how we can use film and media and harness its power to really see tangible, specific change. That work with Honor Diaries really organically got me involved with lots of different communities who suffer from different women's rights issues. Um, there's a lot that connects us in the world. Unfortunately, one of those things that connects us in all communities is a lack of women's rights. No matter what community we come from, I think we can all acknowledge that women suffer tremendously. And I personally think that there's a lot of solidarity and a lot of potential in women from disparate communities in different faith backgrounds coming together and amplifying one another's voices and finding the common denominator to be able to then create change for, for all of us. Long story short, being involved in film for the last 10 years, the woman portrayed in the film, Samira, reached out to my colleague Dana and I in August of 2021, desperate for help to leave the country. While I know a lot about humanitarian law, I'm not a humanitarian aid worker. But we got to work right away, WhatsApping, emailing, calling, and really trying to do anything we could to get our friend and colleague out of harm's way. We thought it would take a month. We just like begged, borrowed, and steal cash to try to get a plane ticket for her and her family, her son and husband. And over a year later, we were not successful. And I just want to acknowledge, you can tell by my accent, I'm an American citizen, and the US has failed abysmally, not only in the way that this crisis was handled, but now in their lack of action in resettling refugees and accepting refugees, and they have not committed to their promises. I can't speak so much to the United Kingdom, but the European Union and many of the countries in the world made promises in writing that they have not kept. And that is something that all of us can hold our governments accountable to. So that's why for month after month after month, while we had a plane ticket in hand, not one country opened up their borders to our friend. And we were able to keep her in safe houses, and I will report that gratefully she is now in Pakistan on a visa. We're hoping that she can be safe there for a while, and we are hoping to in help her resettle. I have to tell you, I never thought that this work in creating film and speaking out would lead to this. 
to actually working in a humanitarian way, but is truly the most logical step. And it is incumbent upon each of us to find ways in which we can make someone's life easier. We are all sitting in positions of incredible privilege. And I'm sure in every single one of your communities, there is a refugee or someone who's seeking to be a refugee, who's in, in that sense, maybe their family member or someone overseas. And please don't underestimate the power of your own voice and the privilege that those of us have who are in democratic countries. So we're still campaigning there. We've always been very passionate about telling women's stories. And now we also want to protect the storytellers. That has just been the general evolution of our work. And we feel, like I mentioned at the beginning, that it is our responsibility to take this story and to bring it to the halls of power, to the decision makers, who are basically just putting their heads in the sand. Because we all know what's happening. And sometimes it's on the front page, but many, many times it's not. So last week we showed the film at the Canadian Parliament. We have an upcoming screening on Capitol Hill. Um, we're looking at the European Parliament. We showed it in Paris. And we really want to get it into schools and educational facilities and use it as a catalyst, just like today. And I want to also acknowledge how important it is to continue to push these stories up. You'll notice that there's a big change happening in the world right now. The women of Afghanistan, I, I think it's safe to say, probably are in the most traumatic and horrendous situation from a rights-based perspective. However, we all notice what happened just a few months ago in Iran as women took to the streets. And there's, I'm not an expert, but there's a lot in common in the cultures and the language of Afghanistan and Iran. There is an opportunity for working together, for using this momentum, and for continuing to pressure communities. Now, at the beginning, you'll notice the whole world was paying attention. And even there was a Grammy handed out to the most remarkable individual that wrote a song. But when was the last time you saw Iran on the front pages? When was the last time you saw Afghanistan on the front pages? We have a responsibility. We each have a smartphone. We each have Instagram. We can be disseminating these stories. They're happening every single day. The struggles that women are facing in Iran and Afghanistan are unique. Each one has their unique stories. But like I said at the beginning, there's a thread of solidarity that exists through all the stories, whether in Slovenia, Poland, or elsewhere. And we need to be thinking about the commonalities that bring us together and how we can harness that and move forward. There are many, many ways to, for us to reach out a hand and to show that we're not ignoring the situation. And I really believe through that solidarity, we, the international community will slowly, slowly find ways to make the situation better. Thank you. Can I just respond to sure. being part of the media? Yeah. <laughs> we are trying to cover No, not it. you. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, one of the things I would say that is a bit very unfortunate in many ways, but was the war in Ukraine overnight it took all the attention away from Afghanistan. And all of those restrictions, most of them anyway, happened once the war in Ukraine started because nobody was looking at it. I remember being in Ukraine with some of the female correspondents I mentioned and getting the news of some of the restrictions and we were like, we can't you know, believe that this is happening. So I think for the Taliban, the war in Ukraine has been very fortunate and also for NATO who you know, were very happy to have the spotlight taken off the failure 
yeah. right, uh, you know, the biggest debacle, basically, in NATO's history. One other thing I wanted to say, we we're all talking a lot about women, um, women's rights and the brave women in Afghanistan, and you've talked about the situation in Iran. One of the big differences between Afghanistan and Iran is that men came out on the streets in Iran. Right. I am very sad to see in Afghanistan, I've been to a number of these protests which are very small, men don't come. And that to me <coughs> is perhaps the single biggest failure of what the West did in Afghanistan. It is completely pointless talking to women about rights and educating women and encouraging them to do things if you don't do anything whatsoever about the male mindset. And that's what's happened in Afghanistan. Lots of men in Afghanistan are happy with the situation. You know, the Taliban didn't come from nowhere. Of course, there are plenty of people that support the Taliban. And I know plenty of people there who will say to me, there's no war now, it's safer. The Taliban are better at building roads and maintaining roads. They're better at collecting taxes. Okay, so girls can't go to school. That is a massive <coughs> failure of, of Western involvement in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. what, what would you say about that, the attitude that, uh, of men that's been raised and the culture of sort of protest and resistance? I mean, I don't think any of us underestimate the courage and the peril that people who are resisting, women who are resisting, whether that is by protesting or secret schools, yes. um, the truly horrific uh, risks that they're running. But I would be interested in your reflections on what, what do you think will happen next amongst the community in Afghanistan? I absolutely agree with uh, Christine because uh, Afghanistan is a society dominated by men. But the men, they don't make up the whole of society, right? Right now, half of the populations are women. During this almost two years, <coughs> the men showed that how they are, that they have a terrible mindset about Afghan women or, 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 or all the, about women. So women, they were alone and this, they are, right now they are alone in, in the country. So they are protesting, they are fighting, they are, but men, they are sitting, they have the right to go to work, education, they are enjoying life. Because uh, when I'm talking, I'm, I'm touched with, with many Afghans uh, because I'm a journalist. So when I'm talking with the people, the, pe the men said, oh yes, now, for example, in Nuristan, uh, it was a very dangerous, or on Helmand, it was very unsafe provinces in Afghanistan. So now this, the men said, oh yes, we are, we are driving, we are going to Nuristan, we are enjoying this nature, and you know, like, <laughs> that's absolutely, for sometimes it's crazy. And then they are allowed to, just they change their clothes, they just change them. They they have some hair in their face, their faces, and then they are. That's okay for them. A small group of, of men they are advocating for Afghan women's rights, but it is absolutely not enough. Mm. Yeah, completely agree with whatever Zahra and Christina mentioned exactly. But I think we also need to. I would definitely say celebrate those men who actually showed support. Mm, mm. That's the biggest problem that, that, that I've seen, that they're not as supportive as they should be. Because if the whole country will be supportive of them, but if you talk to men in Afghanistan, 
like if I talk, like when I talk to people, they're like have families, friends, and everyone. All the men are like they're. Nobody's happy with the education part. Like everyone's like, okay, they need to be educated. Mm. But when it comes to raising their voices and doing something, they just don't believe that it will work. Mm. Especially, I think going on the streets and these things, it's a bit of a. They see it as something. I would definitely say not culturally appropriate. Like oh, going on the streets and protesting and that's why it causes the problem and they're not uh, supporting women which is very unfortunate but there should be some other strategies I think it's time to re-strategize I think the activism on the ground because <laughs> activism inside and outside Afghanistan should be different because mm. it's not it's not a democratic country so there should be even the women they are very brave I admire them they are putting their lives on risk but there should be more strategies more we should approach this strategically especially inside Afghanistan so for example the people the a few men that support they need we need to mobilize them so there needs to be coalitions built groups built so that they will impact influence other men so i think that's something that we can do and uh, and definitely we can make it happen with the support of the international community, with the support of Afghan diaspora. Afghan diaspora is working so hard, even though like half of my team, they became refugees, my family, friends, uh, but they are all, it's so inspiring to see them. They're all over the world right now, but they're continuing their work. Like we see Zahra right now, she went through this whole evacuation process, which is very traumatic and very difficult. Uh, however, she didn't lose hope and she's continuing her work. And like her, like there are millions of Afghan women and men I've seen here in the UK who are striving and, and making it happen. So I think there is hope, but we need to, we will not give up and we'll continue our fight. The other hope I have, uh, last time I was there, I met a, an Afghan man, a tribal elder, you'd know who he was, who's very conservative. And he said to me, I am so fed up with the women in my house being at home all day, driving them out. Maybe. <laughs> well, I think that's been a great discussion. And so all that remains is me asking you to join me in thanking this very remarkable mm. panel. And, uh, <laughs>